0: The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at
1: formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. I'm here in Albemaria, Maria, Florida with uh, Joseph Pierce. Uh, we're giving a class on J.K. Chesterton, and therefore I've lost my voice uh, by raising it too much in controversy with Joseph. <coughs> uh, and Vivian is uh, holding the fort down there in San Francisco. Uh, we're going to begin discussing uh, the book by Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, we're going to try a new format going forward, or at least we'll try it once and see if we go forward after that. Uh, <coughs> Namely, uh, each time we do a book, there'll be one person responsible for that book who will do the introduction and make a presentation of each chapter, during which people can intervene or interject or interrupt, uh, and after which they can also add things and we can discuss it. So we'll try that here. Uh, We have two versions of this book. We have my version that I'm using, which is the older version. Uh, and I'm using it because it's so marked up, I don't want to remark a new book. Uh, but there's a new version which you can hold up, Joseph, so they can see. This is a new anniversary version of the Spirit Liturgy, and it has two preliminary texts one by Cardinal Seurat and one by Pope uh, well, Benedict. You know, and Joseph wants to comment on those. I don't have them in mind. Uh, so I won't comment on them. <clears throat> yeah, I want to give first a brief introduction. The sure, book. absolutely. Okay. As we know, Pope Benedict has uh, passed, has died, has gone to his reward, and I believe he will be rewarded. <clears throat> and uh, this is part of his legacy, this book. And I would say it's a central part in two ways. Uh, first, it's kind of temporally central. Kind of his first major work was in the early 70s, Introduction to Christianity. His last major work was *Jesus of Nazareth*, which was in the teens or late aughts. Uh, and this book was written between 1990 and 1999. Uh, and those are the only major books he wrote. Which, well, actually, even *Introduction to Literature* was not actually a book. It was a collection of his lectures at Tubingen in 1968 and 9, I think, uh, uh, on the Creed. Basically, coming on the Creed. Uh, most of his books, especially after he became Archbishop of Munich Rising and then later Cardinal Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, were not, strictly speaking, books written as a whole, but they were uh, collections of essays or homilies or addresses or you know, radio talks or whatever that were on a common theme and maybe even had been planned and, and, and given as part of a totality, but nevertheless, uh, he did not sit down and write a book. That's one reason that it's central, because it's in the middle of his writing career. Secondly, though, it's central because this is about the liturgy. And if there's anything that was central to his life, it was the liturgy. He was born, as people I think now know, uh, on the vigil of Easter Sunday in 1927. So in those days, they had the Easter vigil ceremonies uh, in the morning. So he was born at 4.30 or so on Holy Saturday morning. And at 8.30, he, his mother brought him to the vigil and he was baptized. So his, his natural and his supernatural life are embedded, as it were, in the holiest three days of the church's year. Uh, as he was declining in December, I had a premonition uh, that he would die on some day, day that would make his life even more symbolic. And he died uh, on December 31st, which the fact is the end of the year is not so symbolic, but the fact that the next day, that December 31st is the vigil day for the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. That is symbolic, that he's, he's born in the middle of, of, of Holy Week, at the end of Holy Week in, in the Triduum, and he dies at the vigil uh, of Our Lady, uh, perfectly bracket, so to speak, his life. This particular book I, I had some involvement in from the beginning because it was written at a time when, I was still active in the leadership or the board of the Casa Balthasar in Rome, which was a house of discernment and formation for young men, and which had been founded in 1989 with Cardinal Ratzinger as our protector and myself and another Jesuit and Father Sir, Father Willet, who became Cardinal Willett, and Father Schoenborn became Cardinal Schoenborn. The two Jesuits, of course, in our humility, did not uh, we did not accept uh, any call. Like so We didn't get a call either, but <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so we would meet with him every February and he'd come by and we'd have uh, meetings in the afternoon, we'd have dinner, we'd have, recreate. We'd have, we'd have mass first meetings, uh, dinner, and then recreation. And we'd ask him questions and I was, I'd ask him, well, what, what are you working on? And he we said, well, I'm, I'm beginning to write a book. This is 1990. I'm beginning to write a book on the liturgy. And I said, oh, that's going to be wonderful because you, I know you love the liturgy and so on. Uh, and then every year thereafter, I would ask him, well, how's it going? He said, well, I, you know, I don't have much time to write, so uh, it's coming along, but it's taking time. So in 1999, I remember exactly where I was back in the, in fall, August, September, uh, when the manuscript came. Ein in den Geist Liturgie, Introduction to the Liturgy. And there it was. During that period of time, I myself have been doing more reflection on liturgy, and it come up with some thoughts that I thought were important uh, that I began to hold on pretty fiercely to. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, when I got the manuscript, I thought, oh, uh, oh I, I don't want to be in disagreement with Colonel Ratzinger, you know. So I began reading this thing, and I just, I just jumped up and gave the victory sign. I said, this is phenomenal. All the little thoughts I've had, he's got them in there, expressed much more beautifully, much more profoundly. So this is a book that really – was central to him. and He spent 10 years producing it, you know, uh, and it's central to us because it's about the liturgy. And I say, I've said this before, no one so far has ever contradicted me that I know of, but I, it, it's, well certainly it's the best book on liturgy that I've ever read or even know about, but I think it's probably the best book on liturgy I've ever written. It, it's profound and it's clear, it's beautiful. So with that <clears throat> theologium, well, let's dive into the text. I want to start with chapter one, or the preface, actually. But Joseph, you would like to say, make some comments on the uh, preparatory text here?
2: Yes, obviously this is the new edition uh, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Ignatius Press, and I think that's also worth celebrating, and it's not just, uh, I'm not the only person saying that. Um, Cardinal Suárez says it in the foreword, and I think it's only appropriate that, that the credit is where it's due here. Um, so the very first sentence or two of Cardinal Saras forward is 40 years ago, as the ecclesiastical turmoil of the 1970s continued, a 37-year-old American Jesuit founded a new publishing house with the objective, as he would later assert, to support the teachings of the church. This year, as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of Ignatius Press, it is only appropriate to give thanks to Almighty God for the vision and courage of this loyal son of St. Ignatius, Father Joseph Fessio S.J. and for his fidelity, tenacity, and perseverance these past four decades, to which I will just merely add here here. And then uh, having, having addressed the importance of Ignatius Press and its founder, the beginning of the next paragraph, in selecting the spirit of the liturgy written by this by his former teacher, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, now our beloved Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, has the title with which to mark the 40th anniversary of Ignatius Press, Father Fezio himself does not fail to teach us. For of all the excellent theological, philosophical, spiritual, catechetical, historical, literary, and other works he has published, this title makes manifest the heart and soul of all his endeavors. So I think that's absolutely worth noting. And also, uh, after the foreword, there's a new preface by Pope Meritus Benedict XVI, and I think we'll just read the opening, well, no, maybe something else as well, I heartily congratulate Ignatius Press on its 40 years of existence. For me, this is an occasion for giving uh, very personal thanks since it was Ignatius Press that first opened for me the door to America and gave me a voice in American Catholicism. Um, And then, just to conclude, for this reason, I'm also glad to know that the press intends to publish a small programmatic writing of Romano Guardini's entitled The Spirit of the Liturgy. Above all, I would like to address a word of thanks to the founder of Ignatius Press, Father Joseph D. Fezio, S.J. I shall never forget the first visit he paid me. Uh, Father de Lubac had commended him to me as a, a true Jesuit. And I could and would like to carry on uh, reading. I don't want to embarrass Father Fezio any further. I'd love to hear it. i love to hear it. Love to hear it. <laughs> but, but yeah, all credit where it's due, you know, the, the, everything that these uh, great men of the church say is true. And a much more, you know, less important note uh, I am sitting here now because of you and Ignatius Press, because it was Ignatius Press that first published my biography of Chesterton and Literary Converts. And if it wasn't for those books, I would not have been offered a job at Ave Maria. I would not be living in the States now. So, you know, you've changed lives, many lives. And uh, I want to personally thank you. And also thank you through the words of us, obviously these two great eminenti uh, of the church. And just one other thing before we start, Father, you know. Uh, I I just want to stress this as well, because thinking that some people might think that, you know, that that somehow other uh, Cardinal Ratzinger is out of step with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Pope St. John Paul II, you know, that uh, in his his writings on the liturgy, it's it's unthinkable that um, St. John Paul II's right hand man would have done anything at all without it being sanctioned and endorsed by, uh, by his boss. Right. Because it would be an act of betrayal and, you know, to actually write anything which is going to uh, embarrass St. John Paul II. So I'd be happy to say this is not just Pope Benedict XVI's view of the liturgy. Implicitly, the fact that he was such a close uh, colleague, the right-hand man of St. John Paul II, implicitly St. John Paul II's right, signing off on this as well. And
1: they were complementary, uh, both with the I and the E in that spelling, uh, but in terms of their emphases and so on. And uh, you know, John Paul too was was more philosophic and also more of a an outgoing uh, actor type who was who had a real presence on the stage. Uh and his literature were beautiful, but sometimes they were you know, have these world youth Matheson, two hundred thousand people there, five hundred people. I mean, that's not exactly your typical mass, right? Right, right? So you can't really judge him on those. Uh Benedict was more reflective, more interior. They're they're both charming and friendly, and humor, sense of humor, wonderful. But but Benedict was more reflective and liturgically. I mean, when he moved came to the altar, suddenly there was there was a an awe and silence that, that filled the whole church. He just he was, he was a man who embodied uh, liturgical homo liturgicus, you know. And then one little anecdote I want to put in here for the record because you you quoted that thing where he said that. He's grateful to us because uh, we introduced him to the American Indian public. Well, I heard this from a person who was present at this. There was a, a an audience after his election as pope. Some years after that, uh, that he gave uh, to this woman who was the head of a, a Catholic publishing company in the United States, and uh, she asked him. She said, "Well, Holy Father, why is it that you know only Ignatius Press is publishing your books?" He said, "Because when no one cared or knew about me, they published me." Wow, very beautiful.
0: We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Doudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Doctor Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating. Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find discerning hearts
1: take lord and receive all my liberty my memory my understanding and my entire will all that i have and call my own you have given all to me to you lord i return it everything is yours do with it what you will Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen.
2: Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, or Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today.
0: We now return to the formed book club with Father Joseph Ezio Vivian Doudreau and Joseph Pierce.
1: Let's let's delve into it. Yeah. Oh, Vivian, did you want to add anything or correct anything or? No. Okay. So, uh, my edition of this, which doesn't have that front matter is 14 pages off of your edition. And then maybe if you watch or listening and have one or the other, so I'll use my number and I'll give your number after that. I'll practice my math by adding 14 Very paid number. Now the, of course the first page doesn't have a number. Oh, is it? No, it doesn't. Uh, the first page is the original preface. It'll be page 21 in your book. It's page uh, seven in mind. And I'm just going to go through the preface in these chapters and quote certain selective passages, which I think kind of help to summarize in a skeletal fashion uh, what the chapter is. And then at any point, Vivian or Joseph, you can enter in and comment. And then at the end, you can add what you want and we'll comment on that. So uh, he mentions, as you did in the what you read, Joseph, on page 21 there, uh, Rom- Romano Guardini's first little book, The Spirit of Literacy. It's interesting now, uh, they're both called in English The Spirit of Literacy, but Guardini's little book, which was which was a bond-breaking, you know, what do they call it, a, a groundbreaking? groundbreaking book in literacy during the early 20th century, was called vom Geist der Liturgie, of the Geist of the Spirit of Literacy. And Ratzinger's book was called Einführung in den Geist, etc., The Introduction to, we called it the Spirit of Liturgy because we thought it was more than an introduction. We thought this is, this is the Spirit of the Liturgy, you know? Uh, but he says here, about five lines down, this slim volume may rightly be said to have inaugurated, this is Guardini now, the Lit- liturgical movement, capital L, capital M, in Germany. His contribution was decisive. It helped us to rediscover the liturgy in all its beauty, hidden wealth, and time transcending grandeur to see it as the animating center of the church, the very center of Christian life. Now now comes a very important word. talks about striving for a celebration which would be more substantial. Weisen in Germany, in German, one of Guardini's favorite words. Well, it's also one of Rasschen's favorite words. Wesen in German means, means essence, uh, the core, the kernel, what a thing really is. Uh, and so he then says, uh, further towards the bottom of the page, what happened, you know, between the Council of Trent and early 20th century, the liturgy was rather like a fresco. It had been preserved from damage, but it had been almost completely overlaid with whitewash by later generations. For, on page 22, the fresco was laid bare by the liturgical movement and in a definitive way by the Second Vatican Council, which, by the way, issued as its first document, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium on the liturgy, and the reason it could do that, it didn't do it because it was most important, although it is very important, but because the church movement had been going on for decades and there had been conferences and there had been papers and there had been reflections and there had been lay people and priests and religious and, and prelates and so on involved, they already had kind of an agenda what they thought needed to be done to reinvigorate the liturgy. And so what the council did, they took all that, massive reflection and, and, and research, and they sifted through it, and then they, they made a, a kind of a summary, uh, organic summary in that document, which is one of the most important documents and a beautiful document of the, of the council. So uh, the fresco was laid bare in a definitive way by the Second Vatican Council. For a moment, its colors and figures fascinated us. But since then, the fresco has been endangered by climatic conditions. He's talking about now what happened after the council. So this fresco was kind of refreshed, repristinated, but then it's been endangered by climatic conditions as well as by various restorations and reconstructions. In fact, it is threatened with destruction if the necessary steps are not taken to stop these damaging influences. So he's writing this in 1990, right? And he's saying the council was a tremendous step uh, in the right direction, but it's been obfuscated. It's been distorted. It's been sidetracked. And it is threatened with destruction, the liturgy of the fresco, the liturgy, if the necessary steps aren't taken. Of course, there must be no question of us being covered with whitewash again. That is, he's not saying go back entirely to the mass prior to the council. But what is imperative is a new reverence in the way we treat it, a new understanding of its message and its reality, so the rediscovery does not become the first stage of irreparable loss. So that, that's his analysis of the situation. What does he say? My purpose in writing this little book, which I now lay before the public, is to assist this renewal of understanding. It's not primarily renewal of forms or structures. Bottom of the page, if this book were to encourage in a new way, something like a, quote, liturgical movement, close quotes, A movement around the movement toward the liturgy and toward the right way of celebrating liturgy, inwardly and outwardly. So, our inner intentions and the outward form, then the intention that inspires writing would richly fulfill. So, that's his preface, which describes the situation and what he's going to do. Any additions or comments on that? Not for me, Vivian.
0: No,
1: all right. (laughs) So, you turn the page, you get to part one. And it says the essence of the liturgy. I want to emphasize that. That word's going to come up again and again. He's going to be talking about not what's accidental, not what could be one way or the other, something which is so central that it belongs to the very being, the very nature of the liturgy. So now, chapter 1, uh, page 27, uh, he starts out. Again, he, he was a great teacher, you know. Uh, he placed a question before you, gives some different answers, and then kind of resolve the problem. So, how do you. Was ist die Liturgie? What is the Liturgy? Now, he mentions that Guardini had used as an image for the Liturgy the idea of play. Why play? Because when you're playing, There's no object outside the play. I'm not talking about professional football now. I'm talking about when you're dancing in the street or uh, playing marbles or something like that, or just doing hopscotch. Uh, You're not trying to win. You're trying to express your joy. It's kind of a a fulfillment, a completion. It's not done for the purpose of something else. It's something which is done for itself. And so that, that was the image that Guardini used, you know? Uh, But on page 29, the top four lines down, he says, but this analogy still lacks something, something essential. There it is. So play is all right, but it's lacking something essential. What? The idea of a life to come appears only as a vague postulate. So play is also so self-contained that you're not thinking about what comes after, you know? The reference to God, without whom the, quote, life to come would only be a wasteland, remains quite indeterminate. I would like to suggest, therefore, a new approach, this time starting with specific biblical text. That's another thing which is characteristic of Ratzinger. When every approach a the theme, I mean, it's probably universal, maybe one or two exceptions, he always goes to Scripture, you know, to find something which is a scriptural basis for the thing. And here he's going to go to something which, I mean, as so many times I experienced when he was my teacher, It'd be something illuminating I never thought about before. Middle of the page, well, up above that, it says, he talks about the Exodus, which appears to have two distinct goals. The first, which is familiar to us all, is the reaching of the promised land. Skipping a few lines. But we also repeated repeatedly of another goal. God's original command to Pharaoh runs as follows. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. I always thought, that was a pretext. I always thought that, you know, Moses said that to the Pharaoh because we we had we, we to do something. We, there's a reason we're going to the desert. We're, we're going to worship out there, you know. I just thought that was a way of saying, okay, let us go, you know. Rats, no, no. He, he sees this as as really central. So on the next page, uh, 30, but two-thirds down, in all this, the issue is not the promised land. The only goal of the Exodus is shown to be worship which can only take place according to God's measure, and therefore eludes the rules of the game of political compromise. Israel departs not in order to be a people like all others, that is, just to have your own land. It departs in order to serve God. And then on the next page, 31. To oppose land and worship makes no sense. The land is given to the people to be a place for the worship of the true God. And we'll see, of course, in in Israel. Palestine, you're going to have Jerusalem, and you're going to have the temple. The very center of the life of the of the of the state or of the people is that temple. And down about a third of the page, uh, the land considered just in itself is an indeterminate good. It only becomes a true good, a real gift, a promise fulfilled when it is a place where God reigns. So he's he's now he's seeing this, you know, the liturgy beginning and this the whole movement of the people the God releases them from their slavery, not just to get a place of their own, a land of their own, but to be formed into people that can worship them properly. That's beautiful idea. So page, next page, 32, or wait a second, just start page Yeah, okay. Uh, he now quotes Irenaeus. And by the way, this is an important quote, because you, you, you hear this often, the first part, the glory of God is the living man. Uh, that is to say, when we're fully alive, a man fully alive, a person fully alive, that glorifies God. We're expressions of the radiation of his glory and so on. And <clears throat> But they don't finish the sentence. But the life of man is the vision of God. So in, in Latin is gloria dei vivens homo, the glory of God as a living, vital man. Visio, vita hominis, but that, that vita, the life, Visio day is the vision of God. And so he continues here at the top of the page, uh, getting to the heart of what happens when man meets God on the mountain in the wilderness. Ultimately, it is the very life of man. Man himself is living righteously. That is the true worship of God. But life only becomes real life when it receives its form from looking toward God. Cult, and the word cult can have a negative, you know, uh, intonation in English, but it comes from culture, agriculture, uh, and divine cult. They're all related. Uh, cult exists in order to communicate this vision and to give life in such a way that the glory is given to God. And now he continues. Three things are important for the question we are considering. First of all, this in, on Sinai, the people receive not only instructions about worship, but also an all-embracing rule of law and life. So he's going, to, he's going to make this point, which to me was, as I say, very illuminating. That the whole point of Moses up on the mountain in Sinai speaking with God was that God was going to give a triple rule of life. How to worship, how to organize your society in a just way, and how to live ethically and morally. And the three are intertwined. Middle of the page. This makes me my second point. In the ordering of the Code on Sinai, the three aspects of worship, law, and ethics are inseparably interwoven, bottom of the page. We must not forget that there is essential, I emphasize that again, connection between the three orders of worship, law and ethics. Law without a foundation of morality becomes injustice. Do we see that happening? We have things called laws, which really are injustices. When morality and law do not originate in a God perspective, they degrade man because they rob him of his highest measure and his highest capacity, deprive him of any vision of the infinite and eternal self. Law, ethics, worship. They must go together. Ten lines down. When human affairs are so ordered that there is no recognition of God, there is a belittling of man. And again, this was something we'll take that book in the future up, that Dulevac wrote on the uh, uh of humanism in the 19th century. They tried to construct a society without God, and what did it do? It destroyed man. Uh, I'm running off. I should pause a bit in case you guys want to interject anything here, but I'm, I'm almost finished. Or maybe I'm not. Yes, I am. Uh, so uh, on well, the next page. there was we should session.
0: end this session yeah. with this chapter.
1: We probably should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because we had the long introduction, which was necessary, but all right. So the top of that, uh, page thirty-three there, or page nineteen, when human affairs are. Oh, I already read that. The bottom of the page, about I don't know two-thirds down. Sinai is not a halfway house, you know, on the way to 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 Palestine. A kind of stop for refreshment on the road to what really matters. No. Sinai gives Israel, so to speak, its interior land without which the exterior one would be a cheerless prospect. Israel is constant as a people through the covenant and the divine law it contains. It has received a common rule for righteous living. This and this alone is what makes the land a real gift. Sinai remains present in the promised land. When the reality of Sinai is lost, the land too is inwardly lost until finally the people are thrust into exile because they're not... He has a whole section in another book about this, where because Israel lost its inner land, the Sinai, the worship, they also then lost the outer land went in exile. Uh, next page, 30, 20 or 34, bottom paragraph there. But once again, what does all this mean for a problem? First, it becomes clear that cult, seen in its true breadth and depth, goes beyond the action of the liturgy. Ultimately, it embraces the ordering of the whole of human life in earnest. sense. Man becomes a glory, glory for God, puts God, so to speak, into the light, and that is what worship is, when he lives by looking toward God. On the next page, uh, four lines down. It is only, therefore, when man's relationship with God is right, that all his other relationships, his relations with his fellow men, his dealings with the rest of creation, can be in good order. As we have seen, it is... Law is essential for freedom and community. Worship, that is the right way to relate to God, is for its part essential for law. Basically, we can now broaden the insight by taking a further step. Worship, that is the right kind of cult of relationship with God, is essential for the right kind of human existence in the world. And now, Barnaby says, we come to a final reflection. Man himself cannot simply make worship. If God does not reveal himself, man is clutching empty space. And he, this, this is a, a theme that comes back in many of his writings. That After the council, there was too much of an attempt to kind of fabricate the mass, recreate it uh, by our own efforts. And he said, you can't do that. Worship isn't made that way. Only two more pages in the chapter, top of page 34. Uh, he can reach out, man can reach out toward God in his thinking and try to feel his way towards him. But real liturgy implies that God responds and reveals how we can worship him. Bottom of the page, no, let's go to the final page there. Uh, because now there's the little the sour note that comes into the to what happened in Sinai. Four lines down. This gives us a clue to a second point. The worship of the golden half calf, because remember after Moses is up there too long, people would get Get bored. And they create a golden calf, start worshiping it. The worship of the golden calf is a self-generated cult. When Moses stays away for too long, and God Himself becomes inaccessible, people just fetch Him back. Worship becomes a feast that the community gives itself, a festival, of self-affirmation. Instead of being worship of God, it becomes a circle closed in on itself, eating, drinking, and making merry. Then. Three lines below that. The narrative of the golden calf is a warning about any kind of self-initiated and self-seeking worship. I know I've read almost the whole chapter, uh, <laughs> but he's so clear, hard even to comment on it, you know. Uh, but it's, it's it's good to restate it, you know, to, to, to read it out loud. So, Vivian, Joseph. Vivian. <laughs>
0: well, it's good to end on the golden calf because... Though we really have two choices before us the right worship of God or idolatry, and idolatry can creep up on you. You know, you people might not think they're being idolatrous, uh, because they're innovating this or that or trying this or that. But I love it when he says, um, worship is no longer go- idolatry now. This is the bottom of R36. Worship, uh, where's The people cannot cope with the invisible, remote, and mysterious God. This is the people in the wilderness now that Moses has led out of Egypt. They want to bring God down into their own world, into what they can see and understand. Worship is no longer going up to God, but drawing God down into one's own world. He must be there when he is needed, and he must be the kind of God that is needed. Man is using God. And in reality, even if it is not outwardly discernible, He is placing himself above God. That is the, you mentioned the importance of the word essence. That is the essence of idolatry, man making himself God and make. So there you go. That's the choice. We either become idolaters or true worshipers. And thank God we have Pope Benedict to help us become true worshipers of God.
2: Amen. All right.
1: Well, I I think we can summarize this or at least take a main point out of it. uh, For him, the liturgy is not something off to the side, you know, a part of life that is in a compartment by itself, but that liturgy and it's it's part of a moral life and it's part of a social structure. And without the liturgy, the moral life becomes decadent, and 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 the structure becomes unjust. You know, now this this is a this, this chapter by itself demonstrates what a clear, beautiful mind he has. You know, so let's uh, let's read you two chapters next week, chapters two and three. Yep. All right. Got it. Thanks, Ruin. God bless Thank you all.
0: Father and Joseph.
1: If you enjoyed this
0: discussion, please help spread the word about the Form Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com